You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons. Lesson 5. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Let's do our midterm review questions. What are six critical questions for sermon preparation? I'm just going to go real quick here because they're all in your previous lecture, right? So the six critical questions, the first three are, what's it mean? How do you know? And what concerns caused it to be written? So those were the first three. So what does it mean? How do you know? What concerns caused it to be written? That's another, the why question, right? Why? Why was it written? Really, even more important to me is the next question after those three, and that's what are the three critical questions that turn a lecture into a sermon? That's the second three of the six, right? So the first three were, what does it mean? How do you know? What concerns caused it to be written? The second three and the actual critical ones that move it from lecture to sermon is um, what do we share in common with? What do we share in common with those to whom or about whom it was written? What do we share in common with? How should we respond? Not just what happened to them, but how should we respond? Again, converting information to transformational uh, message. And then uh, the last of the three critical questions was how do we best communicate? How best communicate these aspects? So, candidly, it's the last three that will most often end up on a midterm. Because that's, that's the critical turn, right, from just dispensing information to actually ministering to people. Complete the following. And, again, Dr. Eswine, who did the last lecture, and he's just a super guy, isn't he? And it's fun to kind of work through things with him, so you'll appreciate that. The, the critical uh, question here is, you owe no more to exposition than what is necessary to make the point, but no less than what's necessary to prove the point. You owe no less than what's necessary to make the point. You owe no more than what's necessary to make the point, but no less than what's necessary to prove the point. In other words, if you're answering all six of those questions, you're going to get lots and lots and lots of information. And the question becomes, how much do I dump on people? How how much can I actually get out here? And you say, well, you've got to say enough that you actually make the point, but you can't say less than what's necessary to prove the point. Where people usually begin just to kind of glaze over and feel like it's overkill is when you've made the point, proven the point, and you just keep proving it, proving it, proving it, because you read so much more Greek commentary on it. So usually the, you know, the straightest uh, or the most efficient way between two points is a straight line. We say, what's the most efficient way I can get there rather than just more and more and more and more information? So if it's clear in the English that this is a completed action, I don't know that you have to point out that it's a Greek aorist also. That makes sense? Now, if it's not clear in English that it's completed action, you may need to say in the Greek language, this is actually a verb of completed action. And we call that an aorist verb. But I would say, you know, most of the time you don't need that. Most of the time you say, is it clear with what people can, I have to keep going until I prove it. But once it's proven, I don't have to keep going. All right. Uh, let you know where we're going for the next uh, couple of times. We're now, as you've been listening to other sermons, and you'll have an assignment due next time, which is listening to other sermons, 
and just trying to identify how people are connecting main points and subpoints to the text. I mean, you've just kind of been listening for that and hopefully developing ears. Now you're going to start doing it. So that's where we're heading. This time and next time, we'll be talking about principles of outlining. And that means after next time, you will be starting to produce outlines. So instead of just listening for them, you'll be starting to produce them. If you wanted to kind of get down the road and uh, kind of think where you're going, here's um, what's ahead for you. In the next few weeks, we will be working on these texts. If your name falls between A and H-A-R alphabetically, you'll be working on Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. If your name falls between 2 Corinthians, uh, <laughs> yes, of course. If your name falls between H-A-T and P, you'll see you'll be working on the 2 Corinthians passage. If your name falls between R and W, you'll be working on the 1 Thessalonians passage. Now, the exception is here in the middle. If you are not going all the way through the homiletic sequence, okay, so this is kind of your last homiletics course. If you're not going through the sequence, will you please work on the middle assignment? All right, so I, I know it's happening later in the semester, and it'll be easier for those of you not going through the sequence to also work on this middle assignment. But everyone else, if you would just kind of look at your names. Now, don't, there's not an assignment due yet, okay? It'll be after the next lecture. But I want to give you a heads up because that will give you the weekend and then part of the next week to start working on these passages. And if you wanted to look ahead now, you can get an idea of what's that about, what that will be about. Again, no assignment yet, but these are the passages that you'll be working on as you start to produce your own outlines, having listened to them now. One other heads up. The reading for next time, the reading for next time, which is the reading for lecture six, is the most important reading you will do this semester, and I will quiz you on it. All right, just that straightforward. The reading you will do for next time is the most important reading of the semester, and I will quiz you on it. So that's just saying that is very, very important that we all be tracking together on that lecture material. And the reason is, of course, now you are going to start producing your own outlines, so we're going to be working on principles together and going that way. Got that? That's about... <laughs> uh, there will be some questions, a few of them from the previous readings, so if you're not caught up, now's the time. Okay, so there will, be, there will be a few questions from the previous readings as well. So it's the time to catch up. We're now going to be six lectures in, and uh, I will tell you unquestionably there will be a quiz unless there's a natural, natural disaster of some sort. There will, there will be a quiz, and you can be ready for that. The review questions for the midterm are helpful in preparing for the review, but they are not exclusive of what will be on the review. Okay, there, there can be others on the midterm. There can be other, please remember that. These are just helpful hints. These are typical questions that appear on the midterm, but I'm not just kind of giving you the midterm as we go through this. These are typical things. What I've said is, uh, again, it'll help you to hear, I think, me to say to you also, the lectures, I cannot say all that's in the readings. I know they track pretty closely, but I just cannot say all that's in the reading, so I'm expecting you to read as well. And, uh, and it'll, it'll catch you by surprise at some point if you'll say, well, well I, I, that wasn't in the lecture. It's in the reading, though. <laughs> okay, so be, 
This is where everybody gets real nervous. <laughs> but that's why I want to do it real early here in the semester to kind of give everybody, oh, heads up, this is the way we're going. And uh, there'll be, there will be three more of these after this one. There'll be three more quizzes before we get to the final. And my, it's my idea of just kind of keeping us tracking together so that when we get to that final exam, it's not a total surprise to you. Okay. So these are typical questions. By the way, not only do you have questions at the beginnings of lectures, you have questions at the ends of chapters in the book, too, right? So those are also helpful. Those are very typical things. I would say probably 80% of what's on the, the midterm slash final um, are in those questions, but not all. All right? How much is the quiz work? Anybody remember? This, this is to kind of get you caught up and not make you too terrified at all. All the quizzes together combined for 5% of your total grade. All the quizzes combined. So if there are four quizzes and it combines for 5% of your total grade, that means each of these quizzes is worth about, what, 1% of your final grade. Now, so you can blow them off if you want, but the goal is to track all the way through. So it's my giving you hints along the way as we go. The readings for the next time are the most important of the entire semester. If we can track on that together, we are in great shape. Ed. Reading assignment six. I'm saying, is it reading? Is that the yeah for lecture, reading assignment four, lecture six? The reading assignment four, lecture six. Okay. It, it says at the it says at the end of lecture five, right? And it says at the beginning of lecture six what that reading is. It will be in class next time. It will be Friday. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we kid about these things and enjoy even the idea that um, there's a certain challenge in accumulating information. But even our own hearts recognize what the goal is, and we ask for your blessing in that. The goal is that we would be being prepared to proclaim your word to your people. And our minds, even our hearts, and our humanity will just focus on our grade what we're about is the gospel. Help us to prepare for that above all things. That those who are in darkness would know your light. Those who are hungry would receive your bread. Those who are thirsting would receive living water. And it would be from us. Granted that we would be faithful to your word above all things, we pray. Equip us for it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were following some of the um, wonderful things that Dr. Eswine was saying last time, you understand that there are basic features of good outlining that we now need to begin to work on to take the information that comes out of those six questions that he was asking in preparing the message. How do we begin now to move that into an outline form from which we will be preaching? So the goal of this lesson is to understand the basic features of good outlining. And you see after the introduction, kind of the key thought today is outlining provides structure for the truth to be related. Outlining provides structure for the truth to be related. Now, it's important that you know that every passage does not have to be preached the same way. Now, that seems strange because it's the same truth. And yet, if you go to any number of churches and you would hear First Corinthians 2 preached in one church, it 
probably be a very different outline, very different illustrations, very different applications in another church, even though, hopefully, both pastors are preaching truth from the same passage. So, I say, well, how can that be? If they're outlining correctly, won't it always be the same sermon? Well, think about it for a moment. If, if you were uh, going to shop at a hardware store to do some construction, you would say there's all the same materials that any carpenter can work with, right? There are the two-by-fours, there's the drywall, there are the hammers and nails and all that. It's all the same raw material. Will the construction all look the same? You say, no, it would be quite different. What will cause it to vary? Why will the construction, even though it's the same raw materials, why will the construction vary? What will make it different? Yes. The purpose for which the builder is building. That will vary the way in which he uses his raw material. What will determine the purpose of the builder? What's going to determine his purpose? The blueprint. How will the blueprint be formed? Who's going to determine what, you know, why is it going to that, Philip? Okay, thank you. The needs of the people who are calling for the raw material to be constructed according to what they need. So, the raw material is going to be the same. Now, we're going to use two terms to kind of get in your brain, and one is the exegetical outline. That's the raw material. The exegetical outline is where you're going through the text and you are simply looking at the grammar, the structure, the logic, and you're simply outlining the exegetical outline. You're doing exegesis, figuring out material that's there. But the exegetical outline is, in essence, the raw material. It's telling you what you need to know in order to construct, new term, the homiletical outline. The homiletical outline, which is the sermon outline. Tell me things that are not in the exegetical outline, simply outlining the text, that are going to be in the homiletical outline. What are things that are in the exegetical outline, the raw material, that are not going to be in the homiletical outline? Mike? Okay, we recognize the exegetical outline probably is not going to be. Some of the times it will have application and it won't. It'll be saying do or don't do this thing. But often the exegetical outline will not have how are you supposed to respond, particularly in what situation? Your situation. So it will not have that material, which we know is is essential to good sermons, is they have to have how do you respond in your situation? That's not going to be in the exegetical outline. What other things will not be in the, just the outline of the passage? What are other things that will not be there? Illustrations will not be there. What else will not be there? Application. Yes, Macklin, that's right. Other things that will not be there? Thank you. Supporting text may not be in the exegetical outline. That's going to be various supporting materials that are not here But depending on what your purpose is, you may need to bring in from other places. What other things are not going to be in the exegetical outline? Yes. Thank you. Very good. The context may not be there. The historical context, what else is going on around the passage? Where was Paul at the time he wrote this? That's not in the exegetical outline. It's historical background, perhaps literary background. We've said you're going to mistake what Romans 15 is about if you don't know what Romans 14 is about. So if you've only outlined Romans 15, you may not have the appropriate literary background. 
So now you're going to have to say, well, how do I know what context is going to be appropriate? What information to bring in? What supporting text to bring in? What illustrations to use? What applications to use? What's the ultimate question? We do not only exegete the text. What else do we exegete? The people. And it's those two things in cooperation with each other that are forming the blueprint for the homiletical outline for the construction of the sermon. All right? So raw material, exegetical outline, homiletical outline, the fruit of exegeting the text and exegeting the people. And therefore, form will follow function somewhat. Let's see how it works a little bit. And here's the, the key thought before we look at these examples. Expository messages, expository messages are obligated to provide the truth of the text. I'm still before Luke 18 and you're, okay, that little gap before Luke 18, then that gap there. Expository messages are obligated to provide the truth of the passage. Expository outlines are obligated, excuse me, expository messages are obligated to present the truth of the passage, but not necessarily the pattern of the passage. They're obligated to present the truth of the passage, but not necessarily the pattern of the passage. You've got Bibles with you there. Why don't you look at Luke 18? Look at Luke 18. And let's see, can you be faithful to the truth of the text, but not necessarily follow the pattern of the text? I'm going to read Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, would you say it's an appropriate theme of this text? Could you preach from this that we do not pray enough, that we should be encouraged to pray more? Would that be an appropriate theme to preach from this text? Seems pretty clear that that would be a possibility. What if I approached it this way, though? What if I said, we do not pray enough? That's the falling condition focus. Notice it's stated in the negative. The FCF is something that's wrong. It's the burden of the passage. We do not pray enough. So my outline might begin, pray because prayer is an indication of the believer's faith. Pray because prayer reaches God's heart. Pray because God commands it. Where does that first point come from? Pray because prayer is an indication of faith. Where does that come from in the text? 
It's the last verse. That's correct. It's the last verse. What about the next one? Pray because prayer reaches God's heart. Where does that come from? The middle. That's right. Kind of verses 5 and 6. Even the unjust judge can be moved by pleading. How much more would God be moved by the pleading of his own? How about this? Pray because God commands it. Where do we find a simple command to pray? Verse 1. Now, we kind of moved backwards through the text, didn't we? But we're still dealing with the idea that we should pray because we do not pray enough. And we're kind of building from the lesser to the greater, right? We're saying pray because it indicates your faith. Pray because God hears. But ultimately, why should you pray? God says to. Right? So I'm kind of ending with that imperative. That's one approach. Look at the next one. What if my FCF is going to be recognizing the people I'm dealing with and their struggles and needs that I would be aware of as a pastor? We doubt God hears us when he does not answer immediately. Is that legitimate from this text? Would Jesus be dealing? Yeah, he said we should pray and not worry because God will hear and he will answer when? He will answer quickly. So we say, people, but he doesn't seem to hear. Could you address that concern, that falling position out of this text? Okay, different purpose now, same raw material. How might we deal with it? If you dealt with this first main point, do not doubt because God desires our example of persistent prayer. Do not doubt because God tells us some request will not be met, but by persistent prayer. Do not doubt because God will answer persistent prayer. Where's the first one come from? Do not doubt because God desires our example of persistent prayer. Where do you get that? Okay, you get that right at the top, right at the beginning. How about do not doubt because God tells us some request will not be met but by persistent prayer? The middle. And do not doubt because God will answer persistent prayer. What does it tell us God will answer persistent prayer? Yeah, kind of six through eight, I think. Kind of six through eight, that his conclusion as he puts it. Now, this time what we're doing, we're moving right through the passage. We're going straight from beginning to end. Now, We are being, I hope, true to the truth of the text, but we are not necessarily following the pattern of the text. Now, I will tell you, I think the most frequent and best way of going is going straight through. Candidly, I would do that most of the time. I would move straight through in order. But there may be strategies that are significant for communicating the truth of the text that may vary why you'd want to go through the pattern. Here's the most key. When you are in a written medium, when you're writing things down, when your English teacher taught you to say things, when did the most kind of overarching principle get said? When you were writing an essay, when does the, when does the large thing get said? First. Give your theme statement first. That is typical of an, a written medium. Say the big thing and then you move down to the particulars. When you are in an oral medium, when do you say the most important things that you expect people to walk away with? You say them last. It's one of the, remember we said we need to learn some of the difference between essays and sermons. Now, to be fair to the truth of the text, if the most important thing is said first, when might you choose to say it in the sermon to be true to the truth of the text? You might say it last. To be fair to the truth of the text, 
you are going to divide a strategy that most communicates the truth, and it may be in a written medium, and you may have to recognize there are certain things I have to adjust in an oral medium. Now, even if you won't buy that one, here's one. If you are preaching from Ephesians, the third chapter, you will recognize that Paul starts, and then he has a 12-verse parenthesis before he picks up the thought of the first verse again. Do you think you might want to preach that pattern or a different pattern? Well, you, I mean, you just recognize you totally lose people in an oral medium if you kind of started a thought and then you're going to exegete 12 verses before you finish the thought. My guess is you will find a different oral strategy to deal with that written information. Your exegetical outline will tell you, here's the beginning of the thought, here's the end of the thought, and there's a lot in between. But you're probably not going to preach that exegetical outline. You're probably going to have to convert to a homiletical outline. You'll find that some of the Psalms are built on Hebrew acrostics. So they're built on the Hebrew alphabet. Sometimes, like Psalm 119, repeating verses seven or eight times before moving to the next letter. Do you think you can do that well in an English medium? Again, it'd be very hard. You'll probably find another way to orally communicate the truth of the text rather than follow the pattern. Now, I want to go back and say, how often, however, most of the time, what will you do? Most of the time, I think you will follow the pattern. But I don't want you to get suddenly in the sense of, oh, no, how am I, I can't see how to do that the way the pattern is. And what shall I say? Fine. Do the truth. That's, that's the expositor's obligation. The truth of the text. Not necessarily the pattern of the text because our purpose is going to be driving pattern. It's not going to be determining truth. Hear the difference? Our purpose will be driving pattern, but it will not be determining what the truth is. If you think of what the purpose of the outlines themselves are, the, the kind of classical statement from a homiletics book from centuries now is, an outline is a logical path for the mind. Pretty, pretty simple. An outline is a logical path for the mind. If I'm going to tell you, now that you're in St. Louis, some of you for a while, how to get to Ted Drew's, <laughs> I don't just kind of say, which is the ice cream custard place, right? I don't just say, go east, you know. I'll say, listen, well, you, you, you take Conway to Ballas, you take Ballas to 270, you go south on 270 until you get to 44, you take 44 down to Chippewa, and, you know, I, I'm going to give you here to there to there. I'm creating a logical path to get to the ice cream. An outline is a logical path for the mind, and it has steps in it. We need to talk about how those steps are. But just to we say, what are the purposes? There are two. We say kind of this outline purposes. The first purpose for an outline is it clarifies parts of the sermon. It clarifies parts of the sermon in the listener's mind and ear. It's a logical path for the mind. How is it doing that? It's clarifying the parts of the sermon in the listener's mind and ear. So by what the listener hears, they're getting that path toward truth that we are developing. But the second major reason that preachers have outlines is it clarifies parts of the sermon, clarifies parts of the sermon in the preacher's mind and eye. It clarifies the parts of the sermon in the preacher's Mind and I. Now, you know, I'm speaking to you off of an outline. 
And I see a major point, and I begin to see the supporting material under it. I even kind of circle some things that I will use as illustrations while I'm talking to you. I'm expecting you to kind of pick up the steps, but the mere fact that I'm creating an outline helps my eye while I'm speaking to say major thought, supporting thought, illustration, how I'm going to apply it. I, just my outline is communicating that to me. I've spoken enough from outlines that I'll recognize if there are large gaps, there's something missing that I need to include. The creation of the outline itself will be giving signals to me as a speaker what to say and what to include and in what sequence to be doing that. So the outline, great for the listeners, it's also helping me organize my thought by giving my eye signals about what I'm going to be saying. As you think about uh, outlines, just a, a thought of why we organize along some frame. I mentioned it to you uh, before. As you are aiding the listener's ear and aiding your eye, you're ultimately working hard on ethos as well as logos. Logos because you're developing an argument of some sort. You're proving something is true. How is ethos being helped by the outline? Okay, it says you're credible, you're thinking. Ed said the, the, other, the flip side. It shows you cared enough to get organized. Those are the two pieces of ethos again, right? Credibility and compassion. So you got credibility. I know what I'm talking about. I can put the thoughts together. I've analyzed this text. And I care enough about you to have put it in an organized way. So it, it's entry, outlines are accomplishing lots of things for us, not just in organization, but also in ethos. If you said, um, what are qualities of good outlining, of good homiletical outlines, qualities of good homiletical outlines, there are going to be five of these. Okay? So five of these under Roman 2. The first quality of a good homiletical outline is unity. Unity. How many things is a sermon about? One thing, and therefore all the parts of the outline should be supporting one central idea. All the parts of the outline should be supporting one central idea. You don't want to be in the case of our mythical pastor up here. <laughs> it occurs to Reverend Billings in the middle of point number two that point number three misses the point entirely. <laughs> you want to make sure the points are dealing with the point, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that doesn't work when the points of your outline are not dealing with the main thing. So unity is certainly something that you would expect outlines to reflect. Second, brevity. Qualities of good homiletical outlines. Brevity. That is, the parts will pass the 3 a.m. test. The parts will pass the 3 a.m. test. We want to say things in outline form as concisely as possible. You know that if you've got a main point that's going on 15 words, it is way too long. You know, if it, if it goes on more than, you know, seven or eight, it's probably too long. So we, we want to shrink these things down. Now, we've got lots more to say, lots more to say. But that's going to be the information, the exposition that comes under that main point statement. 
the main point statements and the sub-point statements, we try to make as brief as possible. They're kind of like thought pegs that you hammer on the door, and then you can hang lots of stuff on them. But we don't want the peg to be 10 feet long. Okay? We try to make that peg kind of as crisp as we can, so then we can start hanging lots of things on it. Sometimes we will say things so briefly that people kind of go, what? What did he just say? You know, what God needs is spoilers. What? What what do you mean by... Well, you almost want that reaction. God wants spoilers. He wants those who are willing to spoil the wicked. I'm going to be explaining that more and more as I go. But I want the crisp statement first to get the attention to let people... Here's what I'm going to be talking about. And then I can hang lots of things on that thought peg. The parts will pass the 3M test. C, maybe a new thought for you, is parallelism. Good homiletical outlines reflect parallelism. That is the word order between the main points, even between subpoints within a main point, the word order is similar. Think of it this way. Christ word demands honor. Christ's word demands honor. Christ's word uh, demands obedience. Christ's word demands love. Now, these could be three main points in a sermon. Christ's word demands honor. Christ's word demands obedience. Christ's word demands love. The modifiers are lining up the same position throughout the statement. The nouns, the subject, lining up in the same position between the statements. Even the verbs. You have an object, in this case what's changing, that's known as the keyword change. When things remain parallel, but something changes, it's known as a keyword change. What does everybody know this main point's going to be about? It's going to be about honor. What's this one going to be about? Obedience and love. Parallelism with a keyword change is like this verbal flag of the speaker. Remember, people aren't reading along with you, they're just listening. So parallelism is like this flag saying, hey, here's another main point. And the parallelism is the signal that it's another main idea similar to another one that was stated maybe three minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe seven minutes previously. But it's parallel language saying here's another major idea and its development is indicated by a keyword change. Where do you see Jesus doing this? Sermon on the Mount. There's two places that parallelism occur in the Sermon on the Mount, or two ways that it's being demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount. Can you remember anything that was parallel in the way that Jesus stated things in the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. For they will be. Here the first. Blessed are. Keyword change. Poor, meek, whatever it is. And then even the latter part of that is in a parallel form. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be. Blessed are the poor, for they will be. So we have parallelism with keyword changes. Now, that's in the Beatitudes itself. There's another way in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is using parallels 
to indicate subject change. Do you know what the other one is? Thank you. You have heard it said, but what? But I say to you. Okay. Each time he's moving to a new subject, it begins with a parallel statement with a keyword change. Now, that's saying this isn't some modern innovation, is it? This is the way people hear things throughout the ages. So the way in which we give them our outline is parallel phrasing with keyword changes. Now, there's lots of examples in your readings, and there's lots of examples to come. But, and by the way, does the keyword change always have to be at the end of the phrase? No. It could be, it could be middle. It could be different places. It could even be at the beginning. So, you know, and by the way, does it have to be just one word? No. It, 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 it will vary. But the form of parallelism that's got some shift in it, and we'll talk various kinds of doing those keyword changes, but some shift that kind of says, oh, that's the main idea again. Oh, and there's the shift. That's what this is going to be about, what that keyword change is going to be about. So, unity, brevity, parallelism, um, proportion. Another quality of good homiletical outlines is proportion. Some of uh, the readings that you'll do will call this simply symmetry, proportion or symmetry. That is the proportion of similar components of the message is about the same. The proportion of similar components. The main points are about the same. Nobody's putting a stopwatch on it, but the main points are about the same length. If you've got multiple subpoints, they're about the same length. Now, think what would happen otherwise. If your first main point lasts 25 minutes and you know the next main point is only going to last three minutes, nonetheless, if you have been preaching for 25 minutes and you say to people, and my second main point is, what's going to happen? Oh, no, we got What are they thinking will happen? Here will be another 25 minutes because the Western ear is expecting things to be in proportion. Again, nobody's got a stopwatch on it, but we're expecting the components to be in roughly equal proportions. Uh, E, the last, is progression. Progression. That is, the thought should move forward with each new component. The thought should move forward with each component. We're going to greater understanding broader understanding of what's been said. So if we just feel like we're sticking in the same place and haven't moved forward, we're going to go, Whoa, it didn't seem like anything happened that moved us along. If I were in this outline here, and instead of the next word being obedience, if I said, God's word demands honor, and then I said, for my second point, God's word demands praise. Now what are people thinking? It's a different word, but what? Seems like we just did that. Okay? It doesn't appear that there's progression going on. Now, here's where you will often develop a difficulty with an exegetical versus a homiletical outline. Will a text ever repeat something? Sure it will. And if you're just following through the exegetical outline, you might say, all right, demands honor, and then the word honor appears late, and you have to go develop that idea again. If the word honor is repeated or the concept is repeated in a text, what are you likely going to do? You're likely going to group them under this point. Rather than deal with it, explain it, apply it, and so forth, and then get down, you know, five, eight minutes later and do it all again. Okay? So I'm going to try to pull ideas together in a way that explains the text 
in an oral medium, and that means there will be parallelism, there will be symmetry, proportion, or there will be as well, and there will be as well, progression. Some types of homiletical outlines. We'll do this very quickly, but just so that you know, there are different ways in which these outlines that are homiletical put, put together. The most common and the most frequent we'll use is logical, a logical outline. That is, it shows the logical development of the passage's thought. You with me on Roman 3, types of homiletical outlines? The first is logical. It shows the logical development of the passage's thought. An example, we should trust God because his nature is loving. We should trust God because his nature is all-knowing. We should trust God because his nature is all-powerful. Well, what if I was dealing with the falling condition focus of people just are unwilling to trust God with tomorrow? You say, listen, you should trust God because his nature is loving. But the objection to that is, even if I trust him to be loving, if God doesn't know what's going to happen next, it's not enough. His being loving is not a sufficient reason to trust him. So I say, okay, well, second main point, we should trust God because his nature is also all-knowing. He's loving, but he also knows what will happen and the consequences of everything. Okay, well, that helps me more. It's still not enough. If he loves me and knows what's going to happen, but he cannot stop the Mack truck from hitting my child, I still don't have reason to trust him. So I have to say, he's not only loving and all-knowing, what is he also? He's all-powerful. He has control of all things. He is loving, he is all-knowing, and he can control all things according to his knowledge and according to his love. In ways that are eternal and beyond us, surely. But nonetheless, we can trust him. I'm building in a progressive way the logic that runs through a passage. Okay, that's a logical developed message and when you're preaching from the epistles and some of the Psalms, logical development is the easiest way to go and very, very common. A second major form of outlines, and these are not meant to be exclusive, by the way, but a second major form of outlines is sequential. Sequential. That is, we show not the logical development, the chronological development of a passage. We show the chronological development of a passage. Because God offers salvation, we must come to Christ. Because God offers salvation, we must abide in Christ. Because God offers salvation, we must testify of Christ. What's that describing? Come to Christ, abide in Christ, testify of Christ. What chronology is that? Yeah, it's the chronology of the Christian life, right? We come, we abide, and we testify. So that particular chronology, it's logical, but it's also sequentially moving through what happens in somebody's life. Have you ever um, heard a sermon where somebody is saying, this is what happened in the life of David? Obedient, disobedient, repentant. So moving through the life of David to say how we must be responding to God. Something like that would be sequential. Another major form of outline is, I'm going to give you two words here, picturesque, like a picture, picturesque, picturesque, or imagistic, image, picture, or image, picturesque, or imagistic. Why do we need this for this culture today? Are we more linear, logical-oriented, or visual, 
visual oriented? Which are we more? You'd have to say this age, this era, we are very image oriented. And now here I listed for you what what I will even confess is an absolutely awful outline. (laughs) But hopefully it'll make the point a little bit. If we are to be effective fishers of men, we must use proper tackle. If we are to be effective fishers of men, we must go where the fish are. If we are to be effective fishers of men, we must react when we get a nibble. You know, <laughs> now, if you're a fisherman at all, uh, that may mean a little something. But what am I doing? I'm talking about the process of mission through a fishing analogy. I'm bringing to mind people's idea of some fishing experience of their youth and uh, hopefully hoping they get a nibble. It's a terrible one. I will tell you one of the best I ever heard was by a seminary student who had been um, in the Air Force, and his career in the Air Force was as a crash investigation specialist. So he investigated what happens when planes crash. And he went to the life of King Saul, and he said there has been a spiritual crash that happened in this man's life. How did it happen? And he just took us through the steps of a crash investigation to say, first, we need to determine point of impact. Then we need to determine, was it pilot or mechanical error? And then we have to say, what steps do we take to avoid recurrence? Now, could you explain the life of Saul that way? Sure, pretty good, right? Point of impact, pilot or mechanical error. What steps do we take to avoid recurrence in our lives? So he's using an image and taking people through an image or a picture process. You've heard pastors do this, right? Did Jesus ever do this? He said, I am the what? The number of choices here. (laughs) I'm the vine, you are the branches. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Taking images that people are familiar with and tying it to spiritual truth in order to communicate what needs to be known. So, picturesque or imagistic. Item D is just others. Okay, I'm not going to go into those. I think once you get logical, sequential, and imagistic, you have a lot of the raw materials you will need for a lot of the purposes we'll go. We'll, we'll do others in future semesters. But those are kind of basic, basic outlines. We're dealing, the passages you'll be dealing with this semester are from the epistles So what do you think will be most likely your choice of those three? Logical. This semester probably doesn't exclude imagistic. You may find a way of doing that. But probably most of your outlines will be of a logical development order. In terms of what goes into these outlines, in terms of what goes into the outlines, you'll be doing this over time in different components, so don't think you've got to do all this at once, but just so that you have an idea of what will be being developed. And this is, a, this is definitely a shorthand here. There will be these uh, various components. There will be some indicator of introduction and conclusion. So, uh, some indication of what the introduction is about. And some indication of what the conclusion is about. So, first thing that goes into outlines is some indication of introduction and conclusion. Second thing that goes into outlines, proposition, that theme statement. What's the main thing this sermon is about is a proposition. Obviously, there will be beyond the proposition main points. 
So here is a main point. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ in difficult situations. Here's another main point. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ to difficult people. Because Jesus is the only hope of salvation, we must present Christ despite our difficulties. Now, those are longer for reasons that we will be talking about shortly. But I hope you see, even though they're very long statements, they have keyword changes. They're parallelism with keyword changes. So that you know the first main point is going to be about difficult situations. The second main point is going to be about difficult people. And the third main point is going to be about our difficulties. And uh, you see that by the parallel language. You probably recognize that as well as the main points, there are various developmental features. So in your little outline that you're making, beyond the main points, there are developmental features. Like, here are various ones, sub-points. Sub-points are the development of the logic of the main point. Subpoints are the development of the logic of the main point. In addition to subpoints, there are illustrations that get indicated in the outline. In addition to the illustrations, there are applications that typically get indicated in the outline. Now, something I said with some care there just a bit ago was that subpoints are the development of the logic of the main point. That is hopefully so something begins to kind of come into your consciousness, and it is this. An illustration is not a subpoint. An illustration is not a subpoint. An application is not a subpoint. Yes, they are supporting material under that main point. But the subpoints are the development of the logic of the main point. So they are typically developments of principle of some sort. The illustration is going to illustrate, demonstrate what the subpoints in the main point have been about. So this is demonstration. The applications are going to apply what the subpoints and the main point have been about. But neither the illustration nor the application are subpoints. The subpoints are the development of the logic of the main point. You may, depending on how full your outline uh, becomes that you take into the pulpit, you may end up with transitions of some sort also indicated in the outline. Transitions. So under contents of good homiletic outlines, indicators of introduction and conclusion, proposition, main points, developmental features, and sometimes transitions will go into that outline. And, of course, through the semester, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about each of those, right? So we're kind of seeing how this will unfold. As we think, Romans 5, of some developmental, pre, uh, some developmental principles for good homiletical outlines, we said that the raw material is giving us information that we need, but purpose is going to be determining the actual construction of the message. And almost always there's the sense now of, All right, how many points am I supposed to use? And the answer is, what's your purpose? In the history of preaching, there are standard ways that we think about the number of main points in a sermon. And depending on if it's a three-point sermon, a two-point sermon, or a four-or-more-point sermon, we know that there are basically ways, again, this will vary greatly by culture, but for the Western ear, 
So people who have been developed kind of in Western educational culture, etc., we tend to have certain expectations of what is being accomplished by the different numbers of points in an outline. So let's say it real quickly, and I think you'll, you'll catch it real fast. A three-point outline is known as developmental. A three-point outline is developmental. That is, this idea leads to that idea, which leads to a culminating idea. Now, this comes right out of Greek and Roman rhetoric and the idea of what a syllogism is and the way that we got accustomed in Western culture to hear the development of an argument. Major premise, minor premise, conclusion. So we, we develop a thought by moving to a culminative idea. So that Western syllogistic method, and by the way, homileticians will always debate, you know, where did the three-point sermon come from? It is the most common in Western culture. Now, I would say it's most common because we are typically more comfortable in Western culture preaching out of the epistles than out of narratives. Narratives often will not follow a three-point developmental form. But didactic passages almost always will be able to develop that way. So we're, we're kind of more comfortable with this logical development. And so it kind of folds into three-point sermons often. But we often go minor idea, more major idea, most major idea. And that's typically what a three-point sermon does. It's developmental. You can think of it as going up the mountain. Start here, move up to here, move to the highest perspective and most important idea. Even the language I gave you before of a sermon being progressive has the idea that you're moving toward a higher culmination. And a three-point sermon accomplishes that very readily to the Western ear. A two-point message has a slightly different purpose. A two-point message is not developmental, but balanced. Balanced. Two things typically are in tension or balanced to one another. There's hot and cold. There's inside, outside. There is earthly and heavenly. Hear these, hear these duos, one typically in balance against the other in some form of tension. If you do not have that tension in a two-point message in Western culture, you know what people feel? It's incomplete. Exactly right. Whoa, did you forget the third? Did you run out of time? Because you see, the third point is really there. You know what it is? The third point is the tension between the two. So if there's not tension between the two, if they're not counterbalanced in some way, then it has this feeling of, this is not communicating anything to me. Okay? Or you just didn't get done. So in a two-point message, and we'll do this very frequently, right? And the Apostle certainly does it very readily. The Apostle Paul has these duos coming between the flesh and the spirit, between the earthly and the heavenly, between the inside and the outside, right? Between the old man and the new man. Put on the new clothes, put off the old clothes. You know, these duos occurring. Typically in the sermon, as we are moving from the first main point to a second main point in a two-point message, we do create the tension. We say, here's what we have been looking at. Here's the flip side that we're going to be looking at. Okay? So we don't expect people just to figure out the tension. We tell it to them because they need that information to be able to see how these ideas are playing off of one another. Four or more point sermon. Four or more point sermon. Maybe summative. Let me just give you the words, okay, before you try to catch them all fast. This is summative, summing, 
or additive or even catalog. Summative give you lots of ideas that are added up to create an overall impression. So summative, some call it additive. That is, you add this to this to this to this. Or even catalog give you lots of different ideas. Now, we're not moving up the mountain, typically, in a four or more point message. Each of these kind of has equal weight. Each of these points has equal weight, but you need them all to develop the overall idea. I think the longest I ever heard were the 14 attributes of a biblical preacher. <laughs> heard of that sermon one time. The 14 attributes of a biblical preacher. Now, he probably wasn't saying, now, this one's more important. He kind of wanted us to hear all of them, right? And he said, you, you need to hear all of these to get the big picture. So it wasn't minor premise to more major premise to more major premise. It was you need this and this and this and this and this. Um, if you go beyond four, I will tell you, in this era, it is very hard for people to retain it. Okay? Four or five, you're really pushing maxes. Seven, eight, nine... You're just going for impressions. They are not remembering specifics. Fourteen, <laughs> you know, you're, you're just kind of saying, well, very much, you know, give me the big picture. I don't remember anything else from there uh, as that goes. So a four or more is, is summative or additive. And then there are in this culture one-point messages. Now, we're not going to do them, okay? We won't do them this semester. We will wait way until the last part of the sequence. But a one-point message, as you might guess, is simply called essay form. It's simply an essay. And the one main point is the proposition or the theme statement, and then it's developed pretty much like an essay. Very hard for people to listen to in this culture. You know, just uh, 30 minutes with no breaks, you know, no, no road signs in between, just paragraph leads to paragraph, leads to paragraph, leads to paragraph. The way that you wrote essays, and, and think if you were listening to the sermon, Typically, they're read. Very few people have these memorized. It's another reason, by the way, that we use outlines. Is it's very easy to get them in our heads so we're not reading off of manuscripts. So um, we do essays, and there are some fantastic essay preachers in our culture. If, if you think of people who kind of present essays in sermons that are effective, any, any ideas who you might think of? Say again. Swindoll, I w actually, I would not say Swindoll fits this. You know what? We'll talk about Swindoll in two semesters because he does a very highly effective form of mass communication outline. And we'll look at it. It's a little bit different. But I know why you would fall back, say that because it is a little different. Tony? Colson. I would certainly say Colson is an essay preacher. Wonderful, marvelous social essays. Usually not expository sermons. Right? Usually not taking a text and unfolding it. But, um, and probably James Kennedy would be the other I would mention. That they're often essay forms rather than expositions. And we'll even talk later why that is, because often the essay form is the way of addressing an issue as opposed to developing a text. All right? And so there may be a reason for an essay sermon, but we're not going to do it this semester. Under Roman numeral 5, in addition to the developmental principles of good homiletical outlines, in addition to let your purpose dictate the number of main points, it's also important that you just know the principles of subordination. Now, here I am going to go in the tracks of your English teacher. If you have one subpoint, what must you have in addition? Another. <laughs> you can't have one subpoint under a main point. If you have one subpoint, what should it have been? 
it should have been the main point. If you have a main point statement and only one sub point, it will appear to compete for the listener. And what is the main point here? It, it, you know, is that a restatement of what you just said or is it something that I just mishear you? Did you mean to state that instead of the main point? So if you have one sub point, you have to at least have two. You have to have another. Okay. Can you have three sub points? Sure. Can you have four? Sure. Can you have five? Oh, you're stretching. <laughs> okay. Usually two or three, right, is common. Two or three. You don't have to have sub points. All right. Maybe the main point will carry the thought in itself. But if you do have a subpoint, principles of subordination say you have to have at least one more, at least one more. And typically there's two or three. C, it's helpful to keep the text evident in the outline. It's helpful to keep the text evident in the outline. As you're developing homiletical outlines, it's often very helpful to use the words of the text in the development of the homiletical outline. So people hear you say something. They look at their Bibles, and it's using similar words. So if I were saying God, Christ's word demands honor, and verse 2 had the word honor in it, that's very helpful to people, isn't it? Now, can you always do that? The answer is no. It, it, it may be that the word honor didn't appear in the text at all. It may have been something like give God praise, sing songs to him. And I had to take two different phrases and roll it into one main point. So, you know, praise and sing songs, what is that about? Well, that's about giving honor. So I may have to take an entirely different word and use it as the summary word to get the biblical concepts. But if I can use the words of the text, that's often very helpful to keep of the words in the text, if possible, in the outline, if I could. The other thing that I'm going to do to keep the text evident in the outline is tie main points and subpoints to relevant verses. Tie main points and subpoints to relevant verses. That's how I keep the text most evident in the outline. If I cannot use the words of the text, my, and you said again, it's under it's under C. Okay, I'm still there. Keep the text evident in the outline. Often use the words of the text, but certainly use the verse references in the text. The verse references. So I'm going to say. Think how preachers develop this. Christ's word demands honor. Look with me at verse 2. It says, what I just did is a standard pattern. State the truth. Place the truth. Look with me in verse 2. It says, prove the truth. It says this. State, place, prove. State the truth. Place it. Look with me in verse 2. It says, and I begin to prove it, and we'll talk about various forms of proof as we go here, but state, place, proof. So what I'm often doing in my outline is I'm saying, verse 2, and if I have subpoints under here, I will link them to verses 2. So I'll say something like, we should give God honor. First, this demands our praise. Look with me at verse 3. And I'll begin to talk about how verse 3 explains praise. But I may have another subpoint that says it also says sing songs to him, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What are those things? And I'll begin to explain what psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are. And that may be something in addition. But what I'm trying to do is keep my main points and subpoints tied visually to the text. What's the strength of that? Whose authority are you speaking on? The Bible's authority, not yours. So I say, here's the truth. Look with me in the text. 
doing lots of things. It's making sure your authority comes out of the Bible. It's making sure you are, in fact, explaining what this text says. Because you've got to prove that it can't. what you just said comes out of the Bible here. And it's doing the expositor's ethic. What do we do? Open our Bibles and I say, let me tell you what this means. And when I keep saying, look here, it says, look here. People keep knowing, oh, you're explaining what this means. And you keep taking them back to the text. One way is using the words of the text. Though I will tell you, you can't do that a lot of the time. But not only can you, you must use the verses of the text. Identify the verse reference where it is. Another thing that may be helpful to you is to create consistent visual markers. Create consistent visual markers in your pulpit outline. You know, what you take into the pulpit may not be what you have written up. What you take in the pulpit may not be what you've written up. It's, it's often quite a bit briefer. So, something that I have just done through the years to create consistent visual markers is when I have the outline that I take into the pulpit, I can't tell you when I started doing this or even why. I always circle my illustrations. Why? Because I've been there set off to my eye on what the, the subpoints are about. So I'm, I'm working along and I'm going to kind of say, I need to remember what the illustration is. I just look down. I don't have to read through five sentences. The illustration is circled. My eye falls immediately to it. So I know automatically what my illustration is. Before I got uh, kind of computer literate, I almost always used little triangles to indicate my applications. Uh, but when I got to where I couldn't create a triangle on my typewriter or computer to know how to do that, I started using these little parallelograms, right? And I, if I see one of those, I know I'm in an application. And my eye isn't trying to read, 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 where is it, where is it, where is it? Where is it? My eye just falls to the page, and I automatically know that's an application, I automatically know that's an illustration. Now, I don't mean to tell you what you should do, all right? Our, our styles will vary hugely. But the thing to do while you're in seminary is to begin to develop your own system. What is, what is helpful for you? Do you put a star by an application? Do you put a square over the illustration? Do you, some people do this with the highlighters that we can do these days, you know, they'll, they'll always put the illustration in blue and the application in red. Now, the difficulty comes when you have about ten varieties of color. <laughs> and you need the key over here to determine what your thing is there. Uh, that's really you know, going too far. But the idea of having, what I'm trying to do is maintain eye contact, speak to people, and have these consistent visual markers will help me, among other things, major points being maybe bold-faced and larger and over in the left-hand margin. And sub-points, you probably indent a bit, make them smaller. I mean, we just do that naturally in outlining, don't we? So we kind of know major ideas and supporting ideas just by the way that we put them on our page. And that way will be helped. Item E may surprise you. This is different, again, than your English teacher. When we are developing outlines for preaching, we typically number rather than alphabetize main points. We number rather than alphabetize main points and subpoints. Let's uh, create, if, if, my main if this were a main point, uh, Christ, word, demands, and I'm trying to think of some overarching phrase for it, because I've, now I've really messed up here when I created this problem here earlier. Let's say praise. What was the original one here? It was obedience. Is that right? Okay. 
I'm not saying this is good, but let's say the, the main point was Christ's word demands praise. And then I had subpoints here. What did my English teacher tell me to do? A, B, C, right? When you're talking to people, do you say A, B, what do you say? You say first, second, third. So in homiletical outlines, we number rather than alphabetize because that's the way we talk. Otherwise, you'll be doing some kind of conversion process in your brain. Let's see, ABC is one, two, three. Third, <laughs> you know, because you, you will recognize the unnaturalness of talking to people and saying C, D, E. You know, you, we don't talk that way to one another. So it's often typical that we will number even subpoints as well as main points. To keep the main points in the pulpit outline clearly segregated, plain enough, our tendency is to cram things together and to do it just the way I developed this. Again, we're thinking of writing essays rather than developing sermons. So my first main point has gone about two-thirds down the page. Where do I start my second main point if I'm writing an essay? I just keep going down the page. But now next week, maybe this main point, first main point ended only a third of the way down the page. So now the second main point takes up two-thirds of the page and runs one-third onto the next page. So every week, you know, the, the points are starting in a different place on the page. What's one way to overcome that? To recognize you've got a lot of paper. So every main point starts at the top of the page. Now your eye just doesn't have trouble navigating. You know I finished that point. There's where the next one starts. Finish that one. There's where the next My eye is always coming to the same place on the page when I'm transitioning between points or major ideas. Now, there's kind of standard in the history of, of preaching, you know, the old, the old one-page fold. All right, if I do this, have one page, fold it one time, I got, I got one, two, three, four. And on one page, I can do an outline. So often, if I'm preaching without a lectern, and I've just got my Bible, I can do this, right? There's my introduction and proposition, first main point, second main point, third main point, and conclusion. And I've just got one piece of paper that I just open one time and close. So that's kind of, you know, a standard thing. Now, people use note cards and all kinds of things. My goal for you is just to develop a form of consistency. So your eye knows what it's looking for and is not searching on the page, and you can operate very quickly and efficiently with it. That's part of keeping the outline seeable, and you see the hint at the bottom, highlighting or underscoring keyword changes uh, while keeping most of the wording parallel aids greatly in lots of ways going to this kind of silly outline up here, but kind of keep it in front of you, honor, obedience, and love. If I highlight or underline those things on a page, my eye automatically knows what that main point's about. And I'll emphasize it with my voice, and that makes it stick out for people as they're listening. My, uh, Mike's question is, I'm giving lots of hints for what I, and earlier in your notes, but I didn't explain it fully. I'm giving you hints for the pulpit outline for what you take into the pulpit to work with. That may be far different from the sermon that you wrote to get ready for the pulpit outline. I write out sermons word for word, but I never take the manuscript into the pulpit. I use the word for word to get my brain and heart ready for what I'm going to say, but I do not want to preach from a manuscript and be reading at people. So what I'm talking about is what you take into the pulpit and candidly, as you're getting ready, for what we're going to be doing here. I'm trying to get you ready um, 
for the steps we're going to take this semester, which is getting an outline, learning where subpoints and supporting ideas. We're ultimately going to write sermons out this semester. But we're going to have good outlines to work off at first. Standard process, I think, for many, many preachers in this culture is exegetical outline, homiletical outline, full manuscript, pulpit outline. Four steps. Exegetical outline, homiletical outline, outline what I'm going to, then write the whole thing out, manuscript, and then the pulpit outline. Convert the manuscript to the pulpit outline. So four steps. You know what? It's a job. It's work. Uh, and, uh, but it makes our preaching something that's very listenable and easy for people to grasp. Some cautions for homiletical outlines. Some cautions for homiletical outlines. There are three. First, you already know. Take out the knots, N-O-T. If you go back to the first page of this lecture, if you go back to the first page of the lecture, and look at that bottom outline on Luke 18. Do not doubt because, do not doubt. Third, do not doubt. Now, if you didn't have the full explanation on the back end of that, if it was do not do this, do not do this, and do not do this, what have I left out of the sermon? What to do. Do not do this, do not do this, and do not. I've left out what to do. Standard preparation. Listen, we will break this rule later on. We will break this rule later on. But for now... Prependel, we're not going to word main points or subpoints in the negative. Okay? We're going to take out the knots. If, if I say, uh, do not do something, it would be better to say avoid. Avoid rather than do not do something. So I'll find another way of saying it other than a negative. So that's something we're going to do. This We're just going to get out of the habit of saying things in the negative, And we're going to say things in the positive. Second thing that we're going to do, take out the knots. Second thing, take out the bees, the being verbs, the bees. All passives. He was good. Christians are. We're going to find an active verb. Okay? And that's, again, like your English teacher who told you, make it active, make it gripping, take out the passive verbs. And the third thing, just to put it in front of you, we will use alliteration with caution. Alliteration, do you know what that means? Where you start each of these key terms with the same consonant. You know, praise, power, and plea. Call, come, and convert. You know, it, you, you, get, you get some consonant going in a pattern. It's a very powerful rhetorical tool. The ear is very much helped by it, particularly when preachers have picked up the importance of keyword structures. And so there's some pastors who always use alliteration. Listen, it's a very powerful tool. If you do it every week, typically it can be problematic. Why? You twist the text to fit your alliteration scheme. It doesn't exactly mean that, but you think I've got to use the same consonant word. So you end up kind of twisting the truth to mean that. The other thing is people may find it too cutesy if you do it week after week after week. And it now it becomes a word game rather than the proclamation of truth. So it is a tool but we'll use it with caution. So I'm, if, it, if it will work naturally, and great. But if not, don't feel like you've got to push it. And some of you are used to preaching that has alliteration every week. And I'm going to say, if it's natural, great, use it. But don't twist the text to make it happen. It's more important to say the truth than to say something untrue cleverly. 
Bottom line for good homiletical outlines, faithful to the text, F, faithful to the text, O, they should be obvious from the text. What you're saying should be obvious from the text that you're developing. R, it should be relevant to a fallen condition focus. I said this was the burden of the text. This is why I'm preaching this. Is all the material of the sermon still dealing with that fallen condition or have I gone down a rabbit trail? So I keep pointing back to that fallen condition. Is all the supporting material, all the main points, are they dealing with the FCF? And M, does it move toward a climax? Does it move toward a climax? Conclusions carry the weight of the sermon. Have I really said, this is, you must hear me now. This is what this is about, which means all sermons have form, okay? Faithful to the text, obvious from the text, relevant to a falling condition focus, and moving toward a climax, which is how you're trying to, in essence, say, this is what God is saying to you. You must act upon it. All sermons have form. Now, these have just been basic general criteria of outlines. I've tried to do two basic things. Tell you what goes in an outline and give you some understanding that all your outlines will not look the same. All right? Those are two main things I try to accomplish today. Because now you're going to start working toward developing your outlines. One more task we have to do after doing these general principles. Next time, we're going to be very particular about how you develop formal propositions and main points. And then your assignment after next time will be go do them. Okay, it's like being medical training, right? See one, do one. <laughs> so you're going to see some outlines, see the forms for formal propositions and main points, and then you will do them based on the text I gave you at the beginning of the hour. Don't, have to, don't start working on them yet. Maybe just start looking at those passages. Okay? But you do know there will be what next time? You know there will be a quiz. It is the most important reading of the semester is the reading for next time. Question? Logical, almost always be logical, yeah. The question was, what form of outline we'll be using? And for most of you, because these are didactic passages, you'll feel very comfortable doing a logical form. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.